Tonight, we're continuing our study through the book of Exodus. So we're in Exodus chapter 34 tonight. Exodus, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's the second book in the Bible. So just go all the way to the left and second book in the Bible, chapter 34. We are cruising through Exodus. We will be in Leviticus in a matter of years. <laughs> Let's pray and, and we're just going to go ahead and get into the word. Father, we thank you. Just thinking about that song, we just sang, we love you. We do love you. We love you with all of our heart. But we love you because you first loved us, God. We weren't searching after you. We weren't seeking truth necessarily. Lord, you are the one that came to us. You're the one that pursued us. You opened our eyes. You came into our life. You gave us life. You forgave our sins. And we just declare tonight that we love you. And because we love you, Lord, we don't want to just love you with words or songs, and I know you like that, but we want to love you with our lives, and we know that your word is life-changing. And what we're asking is that you would change us by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word tonight. Change us to be a little bit more like Jesus. We give you this time. We pray for your blessing on your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, Exodus chapter 34, I'm really going to try. I promise I'm going to try to get through the chapter. I think I say that every week and it turns into a three-part series or something, but... Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my introduction or my, my context, my little catch-up of what happened last week real short. I'm just going to say this. Last week when we were studying Exodus 33, we ended that chapter with Moses with passion and urgency crying out to God, please, what? What do you say? Show me your glory. And we talked about that, how he just longed to experience the full force of God's glory. And we talked about how, how much he had already, had already been revealed to him, yet he wanted more of the Lord. And we talked about how, man, give me that kind of Moses heart, right? I just want more of the Lord, more of the Lord, more of the Lord. God's response to Moses' request was kind of a yes and no answer. He said no in the sense of like, Moses, you don't understand. If you were exposed to the full brunt of my glory. He didn't say this is my words, not God's. Like your face would melt. Like you can't, you die. Nobody can see God and live. But then he said yes in a sense. He said, but I will do this for you. I'm going to put you in a certain place on the rock, in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to cover you up, and I'm going to just let my goodness go by you, and I'm going to proclaim my name, and then I'll uncover you, and you can see my back parts, basically, the afterglow of my, of my glory. And that's where it kind of left off, and that's where we pick up tonight. God's actually going to do that, and we're going to see um, how God reveals himself to Moses. The chapter breaks itself into two simple um, sections. If you're a note taker, I encourage you to be, even if you never look at your notes, when you write notes during a sermon, you're like, I'm going to make, it's like 70% more likely to remember and 87% of all statistics are made up. Anyway, but it helps you a whole lot to remember. Here's the two sections. Verses 1 through um, 28, 
we're seeing Moses back up on Mount Sinai. He's already been up there a couple times. At least one, one time he was up there for 40 days, 40 nights. He's going to go up for another 40 days and 40 nights. We're going to cover 40 days and 40 nights tonight. And then in verses 29 to the end of the chapter, we see him coming down off the mountain and everything that happens with that. So let's look at verse 1 through 9 to kind of start out with. Actually, went through 5. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Isn't that sound funny to anybody else besides me? He's like, Moses, um, you need to get two new tablets just like the first ones that you broke. I'm not sure that he was upset about it. It just kind of sounds funny. He says, and be ready by morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one will come up with you and no one will be seen throughout the mountain. Let no flock or herd graze opposite that mountain. Verse 4, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first he rose up early in the morning, and he went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand uh, the two tablets of stone. Um, we're about to see God reveal himself to Moses. Moses is also going to get the new set of the Ten Commandments, but I just, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I saw something really kind of wonderfully interesting and simple. As Moses is getting prepared or ready to receive the, the commandments, there was like this preparatory part. Did you guys notice that? He said, first of all, go cut out some new stones. And then what does he say? Be ready in the morning. And then in the morning, come up to me. And then what? And then present yourself to me. And I just look at that. And I said, what a great little outline. If you want to chase that down, what a great little outline as it relates to meeting with God. Now, he's not going to give us commandments of stone, but what is the new covenant? He writes on the fleshy tables of our heart. And I love this because he's saying, I'm going to meet with you, but I want you to kind of prepare yourself. And I want to ask you this. How prepared are you when you go to meet with the Lord? Whether you're talking about your devotional time in the morning or coming to church on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night. And I think, man, what a great little outline. Prepare, not stone, but prepare your heart. He says, get ready, be ready by morning. You know, if I have a meeting or if I have to be at work somewhere, if I have to come to the church, whatever, if I know I'm doing something in the morning, I set an alarm clock. I'm kind of a nerd, so I'll pick my clothes out the night before. Like, I set up the coffee. You've got it ready. All i got to do is press a button. And I want to encourage you, if you do that to get ready for work, do that to get ready to meet with God in the morning. A lot of times we're like, well, I just didn't kind of make it out of bed. Well, you know what? Get ready. Pick out your clothes. Get the alarm set. Get the coffee ready because you've got a meeting with God in the morning, Right? And then he says, and come up. In other words, do it. Don't just get ready, but then actually get up and get going. And then come up to me on the mountain. And then I like how he says, and present yourself. I like that. Just present yourself. I'm not asking you to do a whole lot, but just be in my presence and yield to me afresh. Anyways, you guys can chase that down, but a great little outline on how to prepare to meet with the Lord. I wonder how much more we would get out of our devotions and church and, and those types of things, if we were prepared, we didn't just kind of roll in, but we were like ready and, and, and prepared to meet with the Lord. Anyways, you guys get the point. Now look at verse 5. This is kind of the heartbeat of this section. So look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Remember, 
God said, I'm going to let my goodness pass by you, and I'm going to proclaim my name. His glory was linked to his goodness and to his name. Moses is there, and just kind of imagine the scene. He's up on the mountain. The cloud, the presence, the glory of God in some way is descending upon the mountain, and Moses is right there in the middle of it, tucked into the cleft of the rock, and all of a sudden, God's like, I'm going to proclaim my name. And the Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We'll pause there. He says, Moses, I'm going to declare my name. My name. The name is significant because name denotes nature. Does that make sense? We often read in the New Testament, you know, we, we pray in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? We are praying in the nature, what lines up with the person of who Jesus is. In other words, if I go to the Father and I'm saying, in the name of Jesus, would you kill my enemy? Like, that's not really pr- praying in conjunction with the nature of who Jesus is. Does that make sense? The name reveals the nature, the essence of who that person is. And God says, I'm going to show you who I am by declaring my name to you. This is huge. So he starts off, we're just going to pick this apart a little bit. It says in verse 6, he passes by and he, and he declares, the Lord, the Lord. You know by now, we mentioned it last week, it's capitalized, all L-O-R-D, L-O-R-D, which is the proper name for God. That is the name um, that was given to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush where God says, I am that I am. We would say Yahweh or Jehovah, and he declares, the Lord, the Lord. And then he gives these descriptive words that we could spend months looking at we're just going to say a couple sentences about each one and move on but look how god defines his own name and therefore describes who he is what's the first word on the list in my translation it's the word merciful anybody else have a different word maybe compassionate merciful compassionate guys i want to note that this is the very first word that God uses to describe himself. It's the word merciful. That word in the Hebrew language I'm told I read, that at the root of that word, it denotes a deep, 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 passionate love that is felt in the gut and moves God to do compassionate things. It speaks of a deep, deep love of God for us. Amen? Along with that, by the way, mercy also carries the idea of because he's got a deep, deep love, he doesn't give us what we often deserve. He spares us what we deserve. And I just want to say this about that being the first thing on the list. Sometimes you'll hear people say, maybe you said it, I probably said it in my ignorance, is that sometimes you'll hear people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, but the God of the New Testament is a, is a God of mercy and love. Anybody ever heard something like that? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay, so I'm not imagining things. Here's what you need to understand. God has never changed, 
And God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, you will read about the mercy and love and judgment of God. And in the New Testament, you will read of the love and mercy and judgment of God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The second word on the list is God is describing himself as he says, I'm a God who's merciful and gracious. The word gracious there is the idea, the idea of showing undeserved kindness. It has the idea of beauty. One definition was to stoop down and bend in kindness to an inferior. Undeserved kindness. Another way of putting it kind of in conjunction with mercy, if mercy is not getting what we do deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. And there's some truth to that, I think. And think about this. How merciful, how gracious is our God. Just think about your life. Think about your life right now. Think about the undeserved kindness that God has extended into your life. And I think the older you get and the more you realize, I'm really not all that and I really don't have it all together and I'm kind of a jerk and I have fallen so short. You know, the closer we get to God, the more glaring our faults become because we're getting closer to Him. And then we just realize as we get older in the Lord, just how gracious God is to us. How many of you guys would just witness tonight and say, God has been gracious in my life? Guys, listen, every good thing you have, whether you want to talk salvation or a paycheck or a house to live in, every blessing, every good thing that we have is not because we've earned that or that we deserve that. It is because God has been gracious to us. Amen? And I just think about my life, my little insignificant life in the grand scheme of things. How much mercy, how much grace God has poured out on me. And we could just stop right here and praise God for not just the rest of the night, but the rest of eternity for how much mercy and grace he's given to us. Amen? He goes on, though, and he says, not only am I a God merciful and gracious, I'm slow to anger. Another word for that would be long-suffering. And it is exactly what it sounds like. God is long-suffering. God doesn't just fly off the handle. He's not this, you know, just you say the wrong thing. He's not like the grumpy dad that walks into the, to the house after a long day of work and you just, you know, kind of walking like this and so you don't want to upset him. He's not like that. He suffers long. He sees you and he sees the way you act and he sees me in the way I act and he just, he's patient. I am so ashamed of, of how I used to father. My, my oldest son is here tonight, but but, you know, I, I didn't get an instruction manual on how to be a dad. None of us did. We just do our best. And I look back at how my early days of parenting and how absolutely impatient I was and how quick I was to just, no, you're doing it wrong, and you need to do that, and correct, 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 correct. And I look at God, and I'm like, I'm so glad he's not like that with me. Aren't you glad he doesn't just, just strike you every time? Not that I strike. I didn't strike Josh every time he did something wrong. Don't, let's just, I'm going to edit that part out of the message for the podcast. But the point is, is God is just so slow to anger with us. Let's move on. You get the point. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, it's a great Hebrew word called chesed, and you got to get a good charge of ch in there when you say it. Chesed, and it's, it speaks of a, um, a firm, committed, steadfast love. 
A love that, yes, has an emotion. That's the compassion. But the chesed is that love that is a committed, firm, established love that just loves and loves and loves and loves. And God is abounding with that kind of love. Amen? And then it goes on to say, and not just abounding in steadfast love, but faithfulness. That word faithfulness, you might have a different word in your particular translation, but it carries the idea of truth, reliability, never changing, and trustworthiness. I found this little tidbit. It, was, it has been used in ancient times um, of, a, of the strong arms of a parent supporting a helpless infant. Think about that. That's God's faithfulness, his, re, his reliability. I think I always, you always love seeing like big, strong, young dudes who've just had you know, a family and got these little tiny little babies still steaming because it's so fresh, right? And you got that big strapping dad like holding the little baby and you're like, there ain't no way that guy's dropping that baby. I mean, he has got that little one. And times that by a gazillion, bazillions, God's got you in his arms. He's got me in his arms. God is, re- how many of you guys found God to be reliable? He's trustworthy. He's faithful. And here's what I love about the little, um, I don't know my English terms too well, but the, maybe it's an adjective or an adverb. I don't know what it is. But it says he's abounding in those things. He's abounding in those things. The word to abound means to be completely full with copious amounts I always think about when I was a little kid, I had this, this one vision in my head of like, I was going to pour my own orange juice, and I was pouring the orange juice into the glass on the counter, and I was like trying to pour, and I stopped, and it was perfect. It was so full, though, it's actually kind of bubbling over the top of the glass. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, you don't actually try to pick it up, because if you do, it's a fail. It's going to be all over. So you just go to it, like, you know, you suck it out of the glass first. That's the idea of full. But that's not even good enough because it's not like that. It's like, it's like just setting the cup there and pouring the orange juice and it's filling up the cup and now it's just overflowing. God is over, he's like this fountain of love and faithfulness and goodness. He abounds and it is just who he is. Amen? This is our God that, that he's revealing himself to Moses and I love this. And it goes on to say abounding, steadfast love, um, faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love, and it's that same word, um, chesed, for thousands. My, my translation of the ESV says for thousands, but the idea is to a thousand generations. And, and what that doesn't mean, by the way, is like he's counting, and once he gets to a thousand generations, whoop, the, the, the flow of steadfast love and faithfulness is cut off. It's hyperbole. The idea is it just goes on and on and on. He's faithful to every generation. Sometimes my wife and I pray for our kids, God, be as faithful to us. If he is faithful, excuse me, to our kids as you've been to us. Do what you did in our lives to our kids. And God is faithful, amen. I'm so glad he didn't stop being faithful like three generations ago, and, you know. He's going to be faithful, and he's going to be faithful still. He just, that's who he is. I love this next line. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. <laughs> that just sums it up. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's like that's about every word you can pick out to describe what sin is. When it says the word iniquity, what it's talking about is not just particular sins, but the whole idea of our depravity, our pervertedness as human beings. And guys, we are. We are messed up. We were born 
with a sinful nature. I know in our world, in our culture right now, we want to say, well, everybody deep down inside is really good. The Bible draws a very hard line in the sense says, no, actually, everybody deep down inside is really bad. We've all inherited a, a sinful nature, and we've all done sinful deeds. There's no, we are absolutely tainted by a sinful nature that wants to do nothing but sin and rebel against God. And that's what the second word means. Iniquity speaks of our depravity. Transgression speaks of our rebellion. And, and it's, it's, it's a great word, transgression or trespass. In other words, we see the sign, no trespassing. We're like, I don't really care. I'm going to step over the fence anyway. I'm just going to, I want to do that, and I'm going to go do that. Anybody ever transgressed or trespassed? If you haven't, you're a liar. Every one of us has said, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want to do it. That's a transgression. And then he says, in sin, which is kind of more of a general word for, for sin, and it just means like, I just use the word to describe the word. You're not supposed to do that. Um, it's kind of a general idea of just missing the mark. But the difference between a transgression or a trespass and like your garden variety sin is that a trespass is, I know it's wrong, that's the line. It says, do not cross, I'm going to cross it anyway. But a sin, like other sin, would just be missing the mark. You know, if you're playing darts, if you have a, if a dartboard, if there was a dartboard right there, and I had this dart in my hand, and I see the bullseye, I'm tr I want to hit the bullseye. I'm trying to hit the bullseye. I probably would hit the bullseye. No, I'm just kidding. I would, know, I would come nowhere close. Even if I was just a millimeter off the bullseye, guess what? I missed it. But I was trying really hard. It doesn't matter if you had a good intentions and you were trying hard. You missed the mark. You missed the mark. You guys get the point? So whether you're trying hard or you're sincere, it, that, that doesn't come into the equation. If you've, if you've missed the mark, you've sinned. All have sinned. All are guilty. We know that. And God says, and I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And then the next phrase, which is one that has caused a lot of confusion. It says this, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, I knew it, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I'll pause there. That's heavy. What does that mean? Let me tell you what I believe with all of my heart it does not mean. I do not believe for one second that what this means is that God punishes the children and the grandchildren for people's sins, for their parents' or their grandparents' sins. In fact, if you look back at chapter 20, verse 5, where he mentions this principle the first time, it says this in chapter 20, verse 5. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for the Lord your God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation for those who hate me. Those who hate me. So I believe, and, and the reason I bring that up is because I believe there's this very wrong doctrine that I've even heard on this island in the short time I've been here. It's everywhere you go, and it's the idea of generational curses. And we got to dig deep into the sins that your grandpa did so we can figure out why you struggle with that. And I say to that, no. You can quote me on that. It's hard to spell, but you can quote me. I just don't buy it for a lot of reasons. One, it's not God's character. Number two, he, we have that precedent because, listen, 
what's the basis of all this forgiveness and grace and mercy that God is pouring out? It's all based on the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. But if a person says, I don't want your forgiveness, I don't like your idea of forgiveness, I want to refuse it. If you refuse his grace, refuse his mercy, refuse all of that, then there is no other recourse than for you to have God's wrath be upon you. God does not punish the kids and the grandkids for the sins of the parents and the grandparents. Let me give you another couple of verses. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Jot it down because I'm going to go fast. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall put, be put to death for his own sin. Later on in Ezekiel chapter 18, jot that down. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, the Lord says, The word of the Lord came to me, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? This is the proverb they were saying. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, so the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, and the souls of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine, and the soul that sins shall surely die. I don't buy into the idea of generational curses. Now, I will say this. We would be foolish not to say this, that there's a ripple effect to our sin. And the consequences of our sin are always farther reaching and more devastating than we could ever possibly imagine. And you live with an alcoholic, abusive dad, guess what you are predisposed to guess what kind of repercussions are coming your way guess what kind of life lessons were ingrained into you from the day you were born and, and it would be foolish not to say that there's not repercussions and there's not kickback and there's not consequences to those sins but i don't believe in the curse of those things Does that makes sense well then what is it saying I believe basically what it is saying is this. If you refuse God's mercy and you refuse God's grace, then God is a God of judgment. That there is judgment for the one who rejects the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God. Now, this is where a lot of people get hung up because they say, well, how can God be a God of love but also be a God of judgment? Anyone ever wrestle with that or hear that conversation? How can a God be a God? You say you're love, but listen, and this is worthy of a lot longer than we can devote to it right now, but I would tell you this, and I would remind us of this, that God cannot be a God of love unless he is a God of judgment. In the absence of judgment, you're not going to have true love. There has to be judgment for there to be love. And a lot of the confusion, I believe, personally, is there because we have this contorted, weird idea that our culture is really pushing, pushing, and it's permeated thick into our culture, thick into the church, this false idea of what love is, that love accepts all things, and that if you say something's wrong or you don't agree with that, that that's somehow judging and not loving. And that's just simply not true. Does that make sense? Sometimes there has to be judgment to demonstrate love. Uh, you know, you know, we have this mentality that's like, well, you can't say that's wrong because then you're judging them. Listen, if you're in Oregon and you want to go to Disneyland in L.A. or Anaheim, and you get on the I-5 and you start traveling north to Seattle, and I say, you're, you're driving the wrong way, don't judge me, bruh. 
I'll get there how I want to get there. I, I'm not judging. I'm just this, the direction. If that's the wrong direction, why are you judging me? Why are you telling me I'm doing it wrong? I'm sincere in the way I'm going. You can be sincere all you want. You're going to be in Canada pretty soon. You're not going to make it to Disneyland. You know what I'm saying? Like, just because we say something's wrong doesn't mean we're being judgmental. Another, you know, there's lots of different ways to think about this, but the reality is we all, all of us, want judgment. And what I mean by that, think about a world where there's no judgment. Think about where there's no rules or there's nothing. Think about you're playing basketball next door at the gym here. And it's not just open gym. It's like real serious, like city league basketball, like serious stuff. And you're going up for a shot and you're driving down the lane and you go up and you're going up for a layup and then your defender just goes, poof, and just right hook, right boom, hits you. And, and then the ball drops and the guy picks it up, runs, and you're like waiting and, and there's just no whistle. And you look at the ref, he goes, I didn't want to judge him. We'd be like, what are you talking about? Or maybe something more serious where you're like in a courtroom and there's all the evidence, thousands of photos and video and everything that this person is a pedophile and this person sexually abused a little girl or a little boy and the judge says, well, we just, we'll just let him go. I don't want to. What would you do? Even if it's not your child, even if you're not even, you would stand up in process and say, no way, there's got to be. Why? Because of love. It's not, it's not love to let that person go. That's a travesty. Does that make sense? And we say, well, yeah, something that bad. See, we all want justice. We just, we just want to be able to define the terms of when it comes into play. We want to be the ones that determine when justice is due. Well, as long as you're not hurting anybody, it's not wrong. Says who? And who says you're not hurting anybody? By sleeping around or by doing this. Like, you're hurting people and you're hurting yourself. We have to look at what God says what is right and wrong, and, and, and he gets to define what's right and wrong. He gets to define what's righteous. And listen, this is the part we don't like in our human nature is that any sin against what God says is right or wrong is high treason, rebellion against the holy God, and is deserving of death. Well, what if it's just a little sin? It doesn't matter. He gets to, he's the one. And from his divine perspective, he can say, you may not understand how serious this is, but it is, and it deserves judgment. Does that make sense? And so if you are, like, refusing God's goodness, refusing God's grace, you are going to have to stand in the judgment. The wrath of God is being stored up against you, and that's a very, very scary place to be. So in a very, I think, broad-stroke way, at the very least what God is declaring is, I am predominantly a God of love. That is who I am. But don't forget, I'm also a just God, and there will be justice served. There has to be. Amen? There has to be. This world that we're living in cannot continue the way it's going. God has to judge this world. It's going to happen. And we think, well, that's so Old Testament. If you say that, that just means you haven't read your New Testament. The book of Revelation describes a justice and a wrath of God that's coming that is so heavy, it's heavier than anything you'll read about in the Old Testament, including the flood. God's wrath is about to be poured out on this world because this world has rejected God, turned its back on God, wants nothing to do with God. And I don't say that with any joy in my heart. And by the way, that same chapter in Ezekiel 18 that I pointed you to, you know what God declares? He says, do you think I have any pleasure in the judgment of the wicked? 
I'm paraphrasing. He says, don't you know that I want them to turn and have life? God takes zero pleasure in meeting out judgment, but he will nonetheless. We talk about Jesus coming back, and we do with anticipation. Do we understand that for the non-Christian, when Jesus comes back, it is going to be a bloodbath at the very start. He is going to bring an iron fist of judgment to this world. And we don't like to talk about those things, but that's what's happening because God is a God of love. How do I escape that? You realize I deserve that kind of judgment, but Jesus took it for me on the cross. See, we're not better than other people as Christians. We've just received mercy. We just understand, no, I deserve every bit of God's wrath, and I just can't believe it, but God paid for it by pouring it out on his own son on my behalf, and I deserve that. I deserve all of it, but Jesus took it for me, and what am I supposed to do? All I can do is receive that and say, praise God and serve him for the rest of my life. Amen? Well, notice the response of Moses. Verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and the Lord, and he said, if I have found favor in your sight, O oh Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. It's a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take uh, us for your inheritance. I love the way it reads in verse 8 where it says, Moses quickly bowed toward the earth and worshiped. It doesn't mean he like just kind of got down and grabbed a guitar and he's like, how great is our God. Like, he, that's not what it means. And it definitely wasn't lounge style. I don't know where that came from. But the point is, the idea of worship is not that he grabbed a guitar and sang a song. The point is, the, he fell on his face quickly. He, with haste, dropped down onto his face, probably laid out prostrate before God. And the idea of worship here is the idea of just laying out, bowing down in complete and total and absolute subjugation to the, to the superior one that's before you. That's what true worship is. Did you know that? It's more of an attitude of a heart than an action where you are bowing your life, your full life in submission to God. That's why Paul says it's the reasonable thing for, do, for us to do to present our lives as living sacrifices. That's our reasonable act of spiritual worship, a life completely bowed. I can see where this is going, and there's no way we're getting to the end of the chapter, but I will say this. I've been thinking about this a lot, the response of Moses. Because I got into an interesting, quick little conversation with a, an interesting guy, and he was saying, yeah, I just see Jesus, bro. I see him with the third eye, and I can just, you know, I, he's, he's a hipster, man. He's cool. He's, he's my buddy. And I'm like, God is not a hipster. I was like, and, and Jesus is risen, and he's glorified, and he's awesome. I was, just, I was a little irritated, if I'm honest, and I had to kind of repent for my attitude, but I was thinking about this a lot. What do you think of when you think of Jesus right now? He's, please don't think of him as this like very limp figure on, the, on a crucifix around somebody's neck. And I'm not trying to diminish how Jesus came in humility. He did. He came, like Steve pointed out Sunday, the one who deserved to be served came as a servant. God became a man. I mean, it's just such a mystery how he's so humble, born in such humble conditions to humble people and humble himself and but he's not that anymore. Do you understand? 
He died on the cross and he raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he is glorified and he sits at the right hand of the Father and all authority in heaven and earth and under the earth has been placed into Jesus' hand and he is on a throne that is reigning and ruling over everything. When John, the apostle, who probably knew Jesus in an earthly way better than anybody, he was 17 years old when he got called into about, some, they guess, 17 years old, when he started following Jesus, the one that laid his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper, he was very familiar with Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, when Jesus stands before him and John sees him then, with his eyes like fire and his hair like wool, and a sword coming out of his mouth, what did John do? He fell down like a dead man at the feet of Jesus. And all I'm trying to do is, is just, I think it's good for us to remember that there's coming a day when we, we are on a collision course, every one of us, to be face-to-face -face with that Jesus. And the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's going to be an awesome thing to be in the presence of our Lord. Amen? By the way, when it says every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, that does not mean everybody will be saved. It means every person will acknowledge who he is. And those on this side of eternity who have bowed their heart to Jesus, received his glory. It'll still be awesome, but then there'll be that sense of homecoming and love and joy accompanied with that. But for those who've rejected him, it will be a moment of absolute terror as they are before the God of glory who they've rejected and they're facing an eternity of hell and damnation and separation from him. That's heavy. Guys, we are going to see the risen Jesus in all of his glory. And I ask you tonight, have you bowed your knee to him? This is not Jason's opinion. This is not what I think might happen. This is solid, orthodox Christian truth. Jesus is coming back. And even if he doesn't come back in our lifetime, you're going to die and you're going to go to him. And you are going to stand mano y mano with God, the creator, the king of glory. And if you have not received his mercy, then you will be separated from him and take the full brunt of judgment that you could have missed. Well, this is Wednesday night Bible study. Aren't we all Christians here? I don't know. I don't know if we're all Christians here. But if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I had no plan on saying this. I had no plan. It's not in my notes. But if you're here tonight, you need to know that God is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and forgives iniquity and sin and transgression. And he did it all on the cross. He took your sin on himself, carried it, the burden on the cross, died, raised from the dead, conquered sin and death, offers a free gift of salvation to you. And if you take it, you can be free, you can be forgiven, and you can never have to worry about facing the wrath of God. Amen? But if you've not done that, you need to do it tonight. Do not leave this church. Do not go outside those doors until you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm wondering why am I doing this right now because I, I, just, I just wonder if maybe there's a couple people here tonight. Tonight's the night of your salvation. Before we leave, do not come, come see me. Let's pray or pray with the person you came with. But give your life to Jesus tonight. Well, the handwriting is on the wall. We're not going to make it through this chapter. We didn't make it through a third of this chapter. Sorry, not sorry, because, you know, we've always prayed that God's will would be done, and I'll just be really ready for the next time we get together. But let's pause there. 
um, because really verse 10 opens up a whole new section and it's, it's completely unrelated in a sense to what we just read and he's just going to kind of go through a whole bunch of various laws, kind of retouch on those and then at the end of the chapter it's just an amazing, amazing thing. So let's not rush it, let's pause there tonight and let's just pray. And guys, I just want to give you a moment tonight as we close in prayer, we're going to bow our heads. And uh, Austin, would you, would you have a song maybe in the hopper you could pull out and lead us? Thanks. On the Spot Ministries. Um, guys, just in the privacy of our own heart tonight, I think it does us well just to reflect on who God is. Not who we say He is, not what we think He is, but how... God defined himself. The definition God gave, merciful, gracious, slow to anger. And let's just maybe take a song or a chorus or whatever Austin has for us. And let's just, in the privacy of your own heart, take some time to thank God. To, to truly thank him. When's the last time you said, God, you have been so merciful to me. Just to be in awe tonight of his goodness to worship him for who he is. And maybe tonight you're in need of forgiveness. Maybe you came in feeling like you failed this week and you, oh, I don't know if God, you know, I came to church to maybe get on God's good side again or what, I don't know, whatever you're thinking is. Just receive his forgiveness afresh tonight. Just know he's, he's, it's what he wants to do. It's who he is and it's all been done for you on the cross by Jesus. Receive it tonight. Walk in it tonight. If you're one of the few that are here tonight and you've never received Jesus, bow your head and your heart to him tonight and say, Lord, come into my life. Forgive my sin. Let's just take a few minutes to worship, to pray, to think upon who he is. And then uh, Austin or Ave, one of these guys will dismiss us. So, Father, we thank you and we just give you this little time right now to reflect not on what we think you are or who we think you are but what you said about yourself and we all just say a hearty amen to how gracious and merciful kind you've been the wrath that you took instead of us we love you jesus we worship you as we close if you want to stand and sing if you want to sit quietly and pray if you want to come up and bow down, that's completely acceptable and up to you. But let's just give the Lord the worship that's due his name, like Moses did, bowing before him. In Jesus' name.